and welcome to another episode of Sensational She Geek live from Yancey Street. Today is Monday, November 1st, and this is episode 39A. I did not do a podcast episode last week, so this week we are going to start as usual with the news. We have a week plus worth of news here. So this is going to include the November rundown, things that are coming out in TV and movies in November. Uh, the first look at a Ms. Marvel promo poster, some Spider-Man 3 rumors, leaks, and whatnot. Um, a announcement on the a new villain coming for the Batgirl TV show. Uh, the Quantumania title was... I suppose, leaked. We had the Book of Boba Fett trailer this morning, so I do a solid breakdown of that trailer. Uh, we have announcements on the Val Zod movie, or project rather, that it has writers attached to it. And tomorrow, there is going to be a Morbius trailer. That's all the news. I will be covering the Morbius trailer on the next episode, but just so you know it's there, that's something to look forward to, and I will be doing a full breakdown on that one as well. Since I did miss this past week in podcasts, we are going to do Last Week in Comics, which is going to be a discussion of things that came out the week of the 27th. Mostly going to be about Inferno, because that is... If you're reading it, I don't even need to say any more than that. You understand. Um, Inferno number two came out last week, and I will be going all over that. Um, it was phenomenal, as everybody has expected. Um, and then we have some other nice little comics to talk about very briefly before we go into this week's comic book poll list. These are things that for DC Comics are coming out tomorrow the 2nd and for everything else are coming out Wednesday the 3rd of November. Can you believe we're in November already? There's some fun stuff on the comic book poll list this week quite a few number ones um and then a couple of well really the highest number that we get here is with batman reptilians number five which that is gonna be a fun one this week we'll talk about why you do not want to miss that finally we are going to wrap up this week's a episode discussing season three oh gosh season four isn't it of young justice uh that we have the first two episodes premiered a couple weeks ago and there have been two subsequent episodes uploaded since then and i will be covering all four episodes of this first arc of the show because it was really really cool um, and there is a lot of super neat stuff to talk about. If you are a woman in comics or if you support women in comics, uh, you can check out the She Geek shop on Redbubble. I have a sticker up there. You can really put it on whatever item you would like, sweatshirts, posters, whatever. Just says a woman's place is in the comic shop. I had my first couple of sales on that one just recently. Um, kind of a twist on the classic kitchen saying, uh, but I figured I'll mention that here in case there is any interest for that. That is on Redbubble under She Geek Shop. If you would like to find me online, reach out for any reason. You can find me on Instagram. My username is Anna with the comics because that is my name and I, I have comics. My Twitter is Savage She Geek. That is where you will find any kind of updates on the podcast uh, when I'll be posting, things like that, as well as, you know, regular Twitter stuff. My website is www.sensationalshegeek.weebly.com, where I host all of my previous comic book writing and industry writing. Everything that I talk about on the podcast, I had spent probably two years writing blog posts about for my, um, for my blog there on my website. So that is all there 
to retroactively go through and check out if you are at all interested, as well as comic book reading orders for some of my favorite female characters, notably Madeline Pryor and Ileana Rasputin are two female characters who are going to be very, very relevant in Marvel Comics coming up here at the end of the year going into 2022. So if you're interested in all at um, getting to know their characters a bit, I do have that there accessible on my website as well. For Madeline Pryor, it is 100% of her issues that she has been in. I summarize all of her appearances. For Ileana, she has quite a few more appearances than Madeline. So I have her key appearances. I have a number of those summarized, as well as all of the key issues and major issues that she's in. Anything that important that happens in her lifetime are all noted on her appearances list there as well. And if you're also, Clea is one who's going to be popping up in the MCU very soon here in 2022. And I have a completed summary summary of appearances for horror for, for her on my site as well. Um, my pod notes are available. Pod notes is what I call the notes that I just take throughout the week to make sure I talk about everything that I want to talk about um, on my podcast. And I make those accessible for anybody who would rather read the goings on of the podcast than listen to me or for anyone who is hearing impaired who would like to follow along with the podcast as well. Finally, there are links to everywhere that you can find this podcast on my site, which is pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts. And that does include YouTube, where I have all the podcasts in a nice little playlist in order so they're easy to find. And I do occasionally post action figure review videos. Notably, the recent ones have been SH Figure Arts Beerus, as well as um, I think I have the Jupiter... Sailor Moon figure, I think I posted that one, as, and then the Coffin Comics Lady Death, and most recently, I know a lot of people are still waiting on their Marvel HasLab Sentinel. Um, I did get ours in a couple of weeks ago, and that unboxing and initial review is up on my YouTube video, on my YouTube page as a video as well. If you would like to support the podcast, the easiest way to do so would be to share the podcast wherever your social medias will allow you to like and to subscribe and to rate and thumbs up and save all the things that you are able to do to interact with the videos and the audio wherever you're listening to it. Uh, do that. That is the absolute easiest and the best way to get this podcast to keep going. Um, other than that, if you would like to donate to the podcast, I do have a podcast Patreon up. It is just under Sensational Shigi. Pretty easy to find there. Um, it is set up for donations to the podcast on a monthly basis and as a kind of subscription thing. I am still working on what kind of rewards would be going to subscribers on Patreon, but as for now, it would, um, I kind of think of it the way that John Suntries of Word Balloon, uh, thinks about it was <laughs> whatever you feel this podcast may be worth to you, um, you know, the price of a comic a month, the price of a movie ticket or a book. Um, there, that's the whole idea behind the Patreon being set up for right now. But I also have, um, gosh, my link tree has my Cash App, Venmo, PayPal, and everything else that I think I have available to donate on. It's all linked there in my link tree, which is, uh, should be appearing at the bottom of each episode's description on every podcast episode. So you can just click that to see how else you can help out. 
Now, this isn't necessarily a start to the news, but it is something that has been on my mind this week with so many MCU and honestly DCEU projects coming up right now. Um, there was a creator, I the name escapes me, I did not have this as a prepared thing in my pod notes, but there's a creator who has kind of started the discussion um, about how comic book creators need to be, they need to start being properly credited. And that means monetarily as well as just putting their name down anywhere that they created this thing. Uh, they need to be starting to be properly credited when it comes to not just a character who they created, but also their visual designs. Um, I believe perhaps it was... Uh, David Aha, who may have brought this up because I know that this discussion has been surrounding his work a lot and the coming Hawkeye TV show. Um, obviously, I'm going to support the show and watch it because I'm about that life. But at the same time, we need to all be very aware that the creators behind the scenes are not getting their dues. Um, David Aha, if you are familiar with the Matt Fraction Hawkeye run, that is you could probably easily estimate a solid 80% of what they are basing this Hawkeye TV show on. You have the tracksuit Russians, who I think is actually going to be Ukrainians in the show, but you get it. Same thing. No offense. Um, you, you get the picture. Um, you get Pizza Dog, who was a um, big thing that came out of the Matt Fraction run, and it was Lucky the Pizza Dog, and is exactly a thing that is going to be in the show. You get the visual design of the minimalist, the minimalistic art of David Aha, who you, you would have to look up Matt Fraction, David Aha, Hawkeye art, and you will see what I mean by the minimalistic art. The geometric circles, bullseyes, targets, and arrows, um, the way that he kind of made all that work in the pages, as well as specifically the covers. There is a very, very well-known, I assume at this point, Hawkeye TV show poster. I think it's their main TV show poster, where it's Clint and Kate, and the background is kind of cut out in the shape of an arrow. That is a one-to-one grab of a David Aha Hawkeye cover. He is not getting paid for that. Um, to even make things bigger than that, Rick Remender. God damn it, I always do that. Ed Brubaker was the person who created the Winter Soldier. Not to be mistaken with Bucky Barnes. Bucky Barnes was around for a long time before the Winter Soldier was created. Bucky Barnes was dead for a long time before the Winter Soldier was created. But the Winter Soldier, as we know him, who has since then appeared in Captain America the Winter Soldier, was created by Ed Brubaker. He was given a $5,000 check when Captain America the Winter Soldier made it big. <laughs> to make things worse, he arrived at the premiere for this movie based off of this character who he himself birthed from his mind. He was not on the list. He was not invited. Um, he actually called, I believe the story is that he called Sebastian Stan from the red carpet. And Sebastian Stan came from where he was doing press on the red carpet to let 
Ed Brubaker, creator of the Winter Soldier, into the Winter Soldier movie premiere. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page with how ridiculous this is. And this goes along with the treatment of creators while they're still at the company. It is not a good situation. So I like to celebrate great things happening in comics, but at the same time, we really need to remember what is happening behind the scenes and that these companies who put out these characters who we admire so much are not all good. As much as I, you know, love subscribing to Disney Plus and whatnot, Disney is not a great company. No company like that is a great company. Of the lot of them, they are way up there at the top of the list. There are so many words. They're, you know, like two percentile of what could be less bad um, because they put the public face of actually trying out there and the, most companies don't even try. Um, so at least there's that. But when it comes down to it, these are all still corporations and they don't pay people the way that they should be because we are in a late stage capitalistic state here and uh, that's, that's what we got. So uh, just be aware of these things as we continue to celebrate the products of these intelligent minds. But anyway, we're going to kick off the news this week with the TV and movies of November. What to expect this month, because it is November 1st. We are going to have Young Justice is going to keep premiering on Thursdays for, gosh, the rest of the year. It looks like it might be. There's going to be 26 episodes, best I can tell. Uh, these first four episodes that we just finished wrapped up, well, partially wrapped up one arc, and it seems we're going to be skipping on to another arc of the story, which will be about Artemis and Cheshire and the rest of the team, supposedly, but at least Artemis and Cheshire. Doom Patrol is going to continue premiering on Thursdays. There will be 10 total episodes of this third season, and eight are out right now. I have not watched episode eight, which is why we're not discussing it on this episode. Uh, and episode nine will be this week, meaning the finale is going to be next week. Eternals is Friday. The next stage of the MCU is coming out Friday. So assuming I'm going to see it Saturday, possibly, uh, we will be having a review out this coming Monday. I know we've already discussed some of the stuff that we are supposedly going to be seeing in Eternals because of some lack of NDAs, I think, <laughs> but that's okay. I'm sure there's going to be plenty of movie to discuss come Monday. The live action Cowboy Bebop will be premiering on Netflix on the 18th of this month. It will consist of 10 hour long episodes with Alex Garcia Lopez and Michael Cattleman, each directing five episodes. This is again a Netflix live action anime feature. So while we are all hoping it's going to be good, I'm not putting all my eggs in that basket. Masters of the Universe Revelation Part 2 is premiering on the 23rd of November with five more episodes. And I would like to remind everyone the show is called Masters of the Universe, not He-Man. Thank you very much. Hawkeye, the TV show, is coming out on November 24th, literally the next day, with a two-episode kickoff out of a total of six episodes, which will be wrapping up just before the end of the year, I want to say on the 26th or 27th of December. Let me see. The last... Uh, oh, I think it's the... 
Is that right? The 29th? It's possible that Hawkeye is wrapping up the same day that the Book of Boba is starting on the 29th of December. So that's really exciting. We're going to do a full trailer breakdown of the Book of Boba once we get there in this episode. Uh, but that's what we have to expect for November. That is a lot of coverage. Um, I will be discussing all of those projects to various extents. Um, and it's just going to be very exciting. I'm, I'm looking, I'm greatly looking forward to this new era of geekery because, Hey, what is it? It says front and center on my, I don't know if it's actually front and center, but it's on the front page of my website. What does it say? It says it's a good time to be a nerd. That is something that I have been saying. I'm getting on a tangent here. I've been saying that since I was leaving high school age ish. Um, and people were always like, Anna, you're so weird. You should, why, why are you so proud of like being, I am proud of being a dork because I saw this shit coming. Okay. I saw the popularity beginning to pick up and I knew it was going to happen. And so now all this nerdy dorky shit that I know all this stuff about, people still think I'm weird for it, but it's slightly less weird now. <laughs> it's a good time to be a nerd guys. It is. Moving forward, let's talk about the Ms. Marvel promo poster that came out this, this gosh, the past, in the, within the past couple of weeks um, and the leaked image that kind of coincided with that and the drama that came from all of that in general. So the, basically what it is, is the first promotional ad for the Disney Plus Ms. Marvel show was released very quietly, uh, gosh, probably a week ago now, to extremely mixed reactions. Gotta say, unsurprisingly so. The promo poster shows Kamala in full costume, and you have to note here that the entire thing looks pretty computer-generated, not like a regular promo poster photograph of any sort at all, but it shows Kamala using her her powers in her fist. You know, it's the classic image from the comics, and this is the first time that we're seeing how they're going to make her powers look in the, or work, however you want to say, in the show. And I gotta say, it's left a lot of people angry and it has left me a little bit honestly confused. The creators on this show have been quoted to saying that their take on Kamala's powers will be much more energy-based, whatever that might be. Um, in the promo pic, it looks like her regular hand is there as a fist surrounded by the glowy outline of her embiggened, as she calls it in the comics, uh, her embiggened fist like she would have in the comics is that classic pose of her with her hand on her hip and her embiggened fist up. Um, and so with it kind of this electric glow to it, it kind of makes it just kind of, it, it appears like a glowy fist. Um, it's some like it's some kind of energy burst maybe coming off of her main body. Um, and to be honest, I'm, I'm really not sure I can picture them making her powers work to their full extent that way, or at least work as well as she does it in the comics. Um, she is not giant man in any sense, but she can pretty much do the same thing that he can, making herself really, really large just without any of the additions needed to do so. She does this all natural. So when she gets big like that, she stomps on big monsters or carries people across cities or whatever it is that she needs to do. I don't see that kind of thing really working with this more energy-based power set unless she's just going to have kind of a ghostly figure around her all the time, like armor, if you're familiar with armor from Marvel Comics. 
um, the character. I'm talking about the character armor, who, yes, does have armor, but it's, you gotta, it's the character's armor is different armor. <laughs> um, but all I can really see this being able to do is, like, based on this one picture, remember, like, fast, sudden power attacks, maybe. Not maintaining the embiggenment the way that she does in the comics. A lot of the apparent outrage from what people are claiming to be fans um, came from a behind-the-scenes photo that leaked around the same time, showing Kamala in full Captain Marvel cosplay, wired up for flight or some kind of thing like that. Um, I, I guess a lot of people took this as the show's attempt at recreating a fan-favorite scene from her origin, um, but I, I'm not really sure how people came to that conclusion. The scene from the comics that they're talking about is when Kamala gets her, when she first gets her powers. In the comics, she is an inhuman. She is transformed into this form, into being an inhuman. She gets her powers when the Terrigen Mists are sent over the world, long story, turning anyone with inhuman DNA to being inhuman, uh, including Kamala. When she's reborn from the inhuman cocoon with her powers, she has this like hallucination kind of thing where she kind of initially sort of not really takes the form of Ms. Marvel, the Carol version of Ms. Marvel, obviously at this point, uh, with the black lightning bolt leotard. Taking this form forces her to do some intense soul searching and by the time that it's done, she realizes that she doesn't have to pretend to be something she's not. She doesn't have to be a blonde haired, blue eyed white girl in order to be a real superhero and to make a difference. She is just as valid of a hero when she is representing her Pakistani heritage and she decides to take the name but to change the costume of Ms. Marvel to be more like her. So that's the scene that people seem to be thinking is taking place um, with her donning this Carol Ms. Marvel, well, Captain Marvel suit um, as opposed to taking on the, you know, blonde hair and light skin and features like that. I, I definitely didn't have that reaction when I saw the picture. I just kind of assumed this was like a like some kind of Halloween outfit or something and she was just dressed as her favorite hero. It really doesn't I don't think it means that she's not gonna have the same emotional journey to accepting herself as she is in her own hero form. That seems like a bit of an overreaction. It's literally just the costume. Um so the show is gonna be gosh, what, another year before it comes out, so deep breath. Just wait, I'm sure it will turn out as good as we want it to be. Now let's talk Spider-Man 3. There was a lot in the past week or so that has come out for Spider-Man No Way Home, including rumors of the role of Ned Leeds, as well as um, a few official release, well, one at least official release image, and a multitude of of leaked images because um, Sony is the one in charge of the marketing and stuff for this and so they are just not handling it well. <laughs> it's really, they're really not doing a great job of keeping anything, anything tucked. <laughs> but let's start off with the rumors of Ned. So Ned leads, there is a rumor that, I don't, honestly don't know where this came from, but it was all over Twitter about a week ago, a uh, rumor that he's gonna have a similar role 
comparatively to the rat in Endgame, which if you remember, was the rat that turns on Scott Lang's science fan and pulls him out of the quantum verse basically by accident. But that's, people are saying he'll have that kind of role. So let's talk about Ned Leeds for a little bit. Ned Leeds in the comics, he becomes the third Hobgoblin, Hobgoblin being a very infamous one of Spidey's villains. Well, Ned in the movie admittedly seems to be more of a cross between comic book Ned and comic book Genki, who is Miles Morales' roommate slash best friend. Um, it really has been speculated since the beginning that we're still going to see perhaps uh, the film version of Ned here turn into end up as possibly some version as the Hobgoblin. In the comics, Ned Lead was a Ned Lead Ned Leeds was a reporter for the Daily Bugle alongside Petey, Petey Parker. <laughs> I don't know why I decided to say Petey. Um, <laughs> he completed or he competed for the affections of Betty Brant. Leeds and Brant ended up being married for a time, um, but their marriage was not super healthy. <laughs> After Spider-Man battles, who was the current Hobgoblin at the time, Ned followed Hobgoblin to a hideout. When the villain realizes that Ned is there, Ned is captured and brainwashed to be used as a scapegoat. Ned's regular continued brainwashing causes his marriage with Betty and professional relationships to completely fall apart. Increasingly mentally unstable, Ned drives Betty to seek solace in Flash Thompson. Now we know Flash Thompson from the Spider-Man movies. He's that annoying dorky short kid whose parents never give him attention or something like that. You know the one I'm talking. He's an annoying rich kid. Uh, so then Flash is framed as Hobgoblin, but after he's cleared, the New York underworld empire discovers that it's Ned who's the Hobgoblin and that he would soon be traveling to Berlin on assignment with Mr. Parker, dear old Petey. Leeds is murdered by the foreigner, who is a fun character of the time, and Kingpin uses pictures of the unmasked body to convince Spider-Man to go after the foreigner in revenge and that Ned Leeds was, in fact, a uh, Hobgoblin. With this apparent new information, uh, the theory, the, the, the rumor that he's going to have a role, a heroic role similar to the Rat in Endgame, I would guess that Ned maybe does something heroic that backfires on him while still attaining its overall goal, um, and he is just left behind change somehow. Uh, there was also, for Spider-Man No Way Home, some kind of footage or an image possibly released with Doc Ock chasing Spider-Man on an overpass. We all know now Doc Ock is going to be in this. That's confirmed. Uh, but this, this, this footage slash photo, whatever it was, it, A, it looked like a terrible Photoshop job, and B, was what many on the internet are theorizing, was a poorly hidden attempt at creating a new meme format, which does follow with the uh, Sony Marvel's apparent goal of aiming for like a like a youthful target audience, um, but it seems to have missed their mark. It feels a lot like the um, hello fellow children, fellow kids. You know, see Buscemi. No, you're not a child. He dressed up as he dressed up as his own meme for Halloween last night. By the way, if you hadn't seen that, look it up. It's hilarious. Um, yeah, it was pretty funny. Finally, in terms of Spider-Man No Way Home, there have been a plethora of leaked images in the past week. 
I honestly don't know whose job it could have possibly been to not leak those, but they, I'm sure, don't have that job anymore. <laughs> or maybe Sony just doesn't care. I don't know. Um, but starting with the biggie, uh, the one that I think is the biggest news, <laughs> it was an image of... I should really start putting pictures in my podcast notes, shouldn't I? So when I'm referencing a picture, I should put it... Anyway, it was an image of the three Spider-Man suits all together. And by the three Spider-Man suits, I mean the Tobey Maguire, the Andrew Garfield, and the Tom Holland. All on hangers together, clearly on set, waiting to be put into use. Um, yes, there are chances that this could have possibly been somebody's very extensive and elaborate Halloween setup. Um, which they were getting dressed into with their friends. I don't know. I'm just trying to be skeptical to make sure our, I'm not saying anything that ends up being super false. Um, it seems pretty clear that that's a legit picture. <laughs> and to make, to make it even, um, firmer, it's firmer, to make it even more solidified, um, the, there were pictures also that leaked of one of uh, concept pictures of Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man movie suit and another of what was apparently Tobey Maguire in his movie suit before they add the CGI. Um, all supposedly, but I mean, at this point, are we still going to say if the characters are in the movie or are we going to just let it go and say when we see them? <laughs> To further exasperate that, to further solidify that, I gotta get my words right. Uh, there was also green, not only Green Goblin concept art images that leaked, but a actual photo of a what was probably a test actor or stunt double, maybe in the Green Goblin suit. It is a suit that is very similar to the one that we saw in the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man. However, it has some notable differences, um, which I'll get to in a second. Um, and I just, I just think at this point, we, we let's just accept that um, all of this excess is going to be in the movie, and just try to make the best of it. So, what all this, bringing all of this into um, one, one ball here. What this all makes up for me, I think it means one, one important thing that these characters from these other movies that we're seeing are not tying together the universes, which we as viewers saw with those actors. All of these characters are, I think they're variants from, it would be minimum two universes, right? That we see, um, we as movie viewers, we haven't seen yet. The Peters, who are going to be in those two other costumes, Toby and Andrew, so, supposedly, yeah, it's going to be them, okay, guys, uh, Toby and Andrew, they could be perhaps extremely similar to parallel Peters to the ones who we saw in those other movies, just like the villains will be, but it's not going to be those exact universes that we've already seen. And another reason to also think that is because Green Goblin died, yo. He was super dead. <laughs> um, so I, 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 that makes me feel a lot better about it, actually. I just, I just can't, for the life of me, get on board with the three movie universes being tied together. And based on this 
leaks, these leaks, I'm beginning to think that's not what's happening. We are going to be seeing a Tobey Maguire Spider-Man and a Andrew Garfield Spider-Man and a what's-his-name Green Goblin and, you know, Auk as that dude too. or You know what I mean. But I think those are going to be from separate universes. It's going to be two, the, the, the Maguire and the Garfield Spider-Man universes, but they're not the movie universes that we as viewers watched in the Maguire and the Garfield movies, if that makes sense. Um, they're just, they're very, very slightly parallel universes. Um, so they can be, everything can be exactly the same except for their villains are still alive or something like that, but it's, it's not going to be the exact movie universes that we had seen before. That makes me feel so much better even saying that out loud. It just sounds like such a better idea. <laughs> um, so I'm back on board with this being probably a good movie. <laughs> um... Well, it'll st it still remains to be seen. As long as I'm correct about that and they're not the exact movie Spider-Man, I feel like a lot of the, the, the cheesiness that would have ruined it for me um, stays below my top line, you know? <laughs> Good things are coming, I hope. And everybody is saying that there's going to be a trailer, you know, every day on Twitter you open up and somebody's saying, oh, I, I happen to have an inside loop that there's a trailer coming today. And then it's, it's yet to happen. We've, we've had a trailer, guys, with all of the hullabaloo. They're probably not going to release another trailer until it's like something that's going to blow our minds. It's probably going to be with Eternals. Is that not obvious? Have I, or are they going to show us the other one that we've already seen with the Eternals? I guess we'll find out this weekend. Next up in news, we have Brendan Fraser has been cast in the Batgirl show as villain Firefly. Fraser currently is acting as Robot Man on Doom Patrol and completely killing it, if, you, if I do say so myself. Um... I am a big fan of Brendan Fraser ever since I was little. I don't think there's many people who are familiar with Brendan Fraser and aren't like, hey, that's a really cool dude and I support him. But that's how I feel. <laughs> but anyway, he will be reportedly playing Firefly. There are fans who are theorizing he's going to be like an aging villain who opens the door for a copycat younger or female and or female villain to take up his role as Firefly. Firefly was a character who was created by France Heron and Dick Spring. Boy, Dick Spring, that's a name. He made his debut in Detective Comics number 184 in 19 freaking 52. It was a while ago, guys. Uh, the, his real name in the comics is Garfield Linz. That was the first Firefly. He was initially designed as a criminal who used his film and lighting special effects skills to commit robberies. And he was later reimagined as a sociopathic pyromaniac with an obsessive compulsion to starting fires after, Christ after Crisis on Infinite Earths rebooted the DC Universe in the 80s. The darker version of the character that came in the 80s has remained as one of the Batman superhero's most recurring enemies and belongs to the official Batman rogues gallery. After he is horribly scarred by a blaze at a chemical factory, 
Linz, remember this is Garfield, Linz, mechanically engineered an insulated fireproof battle suit to help protect himself. This specialized outfit is equipped with an extensive arsenal of fire-creating weapons, including a military-grade flamethrower, various incendiary devices such as grenades, napalm, and smoke bombs, and a sword-like blade of superheated superheated plasma for close-range hand-to-hand combat. It's like a lightsaber. A high-tech winged jacket pack jetpack is also mounted on the back of the armor to allow for high-speed flight. Then we have Ted Carson, who is the second Firefly, created by Bill Finger and Sheldon Moldoff in Batman 126. Carson was an ostentiously wealthy gold mine heir who gambled his family fortune away and subsequently turned to a life of crime as the second Firefly. Carson then goes on a robbery spree before being apprehended by Batman and Batwoman. In New 52, where they rebooted DC once again, Carson is a former high school teacher who tries to incinerate everything that will separate him from his ex-girlfriend, Cindy Cook, though he is ultimately defeated by Nightwing and Batgirl. So that's where we kind of get the ties to perhaps Batgirl showing up or him showing up on the Batgirl show. Meanwhile, in Rebirth, which wasn't really as much a relaunch or a reboot as just a Eh, whatever. It was a relaunch. Ted Carson, who was the second um, Firefly you may remember, and Killer Moth attempt to kill Batman to collect Two-Face's multi-million dollar bounty on him. Carson is later seen as one of the many villains that Bane pummels in his quest to reach Batman at Arkham Asylum. In the War of Jokes and Riddles, 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 not Ritters, flashback plotline of Tom King's Batman, Carson is shown siding with the Riddler side of things. When we get into if there is a female version or a copycat version, we have Bridget Pike. She was a character who debuted on Gotham, the TV show, as a female version of Firefly. She was a girl who grew up with a gang of arsonists. I vaguely recall watching that. Uh, back when I watched Gotham when it first started. She is subsequently brought into the comics uh, for Prime Earth, where she is Ted Carson, the second Firefly's protege, and adopts the identity of Lady Firefly. She first appears in the comics in Detective Comics 988 and was created by then-writers James Robinson and Steven Segovia. She and Carson are hired by villain Cobra to kill Batman while he investigates a murder. This is all fairly recent history, so it's not too far of a stretch with Fry- with Frasier having been cast as reportedly Firefly that he may have a protege um, who is working for him because he is old and broken and whatever the case may be. That definitely seems like the kind of role he could easily get into. The third Ant-Man movie, aka Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantum Mania, had a image leak as well from set last week. It was a Apparently, the back of one of their set chairs that has the official title, the official title art on the chair. Um, and looking at it now, where I have, again, this is where putting pictures in my pod notes would be quite helpful, because I am referencing this picture. Um, it does not look like it says Quantum Mania. <laughs> How do I even describe... There were some hilarious Twitter responses. Let's see. Um, 
One person says, uh, this is the only intelligent thing I think anybody had to say about it was that could be a clue to the language of the microverse that perhaps is appearing in the comics. My, that was my best guess, maybe introducing some kind of alien language in the movie that will make sense to us after we finish the movie. Um, is <laughs> It just it does not look like it says ever people are you know the Twitter responses people are putting in random you know symbols. Um, this person says puts the picture and says Ant Man the Wasp graphic design is my passion. Uh, there's that demonic text somebody put Quantumania in that demonic text. It's just it just looks like it says like a bunch of O's. I I realize now that I've made that noise out loud and I regret it. How dumb it sounded. Um, but speaking of Quantumania, we have one other thing about it that is not just the ridiculous title that may or may not be real. Probably is. Bill Murray has announced himself, apparently, that he is going to be featured in Quantumania as well. I <laughs> If there was ever an, a Marvel movie that Bill Murray was going to show up in, by God, it would be an Ant-Man movie. <laughs> Especially after we've seen these Ant-Man movies. Oh my God, with Paul Rudd. This has been... Uh, my guess here, Bill Murray in Quantumania, my guess, he's going to be Scott Lang's dad. You know, some aged grifter asshole who runs out of money so he reaches out to his superhero kid to take advantage of his newfound not really fame and Scott would be against it the whole time uh you know fighting him the whole time they'd get into some shit and get arrested Cassie would have to come bail them out of jail you can see it all now I love it I think I will only be disappointed if Bill Murray is not playing Scott Lang's dad in Quantum Mania. <laughs> hopefully it's not just like a cameo because that also would be disappointing give him give him a role with depth or have him play himself I, I but I still think being his dad would be the ultimate hilarious good choice thing to do. Yeah. Important news that dropped this morning. The Book of Boba Fett trailer has premiered and I'm going to give you a solid trailer breakdown. This has been exceedingly exciting. Um, to describe, well, obviously if you're familiar with the podcast, you know that I am a big Star Wars fan. Um, I am of the belief in Star Wars that let people like shit, for God's sake. If they like the prequels, let them like them. If they like the sequels, let them like them. You don't need to argue with them about it. Let them like things. Sure, there are parts of it I definitely was against, but I'm not going to spend all week hating on it because that the amount of dedication it takes to hate on Star Wars, the amount that some of these people online do... It is dedication. They are dedicated to it. But this, um, I never understood being a young child who watched the Star Wars movies as a young child for the first time, right? I never understood the Boba Fett love. Um, I know when they had that other character who came out in the sequel movies, um, Phas Phasma? Yeah, Captain Phasma. There had that terrible quote where people were like, oh yeah, she's going to be the new Boba Fett. She's going to catch on. Everybody's going to love her. You you can't announce something is going to be the new Boba Fett because what is Boba? What, what is the Boba Fett craze? It is 
people decided this guy was a badass who had zero lines and who dies in the end. <laughs> they just decided he was, they, they was, I and everybody got on board with it. I was, I never understood, never understood. And when Mandalorian was happening and everybody was like, oh, fuck yeah, dude, we're going to see Boba and Mandalorian. I was literally sitting there going, please, for the love of Christ, no, I don't want these fanboys to win. <laughs> I just did not understand it. Um, and But we did see, the thing is, we did see in the prequels, Tamora Morrison playing Jango Fett, the father of Boba Fett. Um, he's a super cool dude for a lot of reasons. But um, they brought him back for playing Boba in Mando. And that was, I think, the thing that got me kind of like, okay, this could be... This could be something kind of cool. Um, and the way that they brought him back in Mando, um, you know, it was really awesome. But after seeing this trailer, I understand the Bobus. I, I, not, not, not just that I understand it, but I feel like it is granted now. I'll, I, I will allow the Boba craze to continue. Because <laughs> I have any say in it, right? Um <laughs> Uh, uh, summarizing my feelings about this trailer, I am pumped beyond belief. Um, I did not think that I was going to give two shits beyond Tuesday. I, I just made that up. I didn't think I was going to care too much about this. Um, but this is uh, November 29th. Sorry, December 29th. I don't know why I keep saying that wrong. December 29th. Um, Tamora Morrison, Ming-Na Wen in the Book of Boba Fett. It's going to be the godfather of Star Wars, and I am already, like, super duper on board of it. I'm also a really big fan of Ming-Na Wen. Can I just stop for a second and just be a bit of a fangirl about her? Because not only is she goddamn Mulan, she's also, um, what, the leader of S.H.I.E.L.D. or something? An excellent voice actress and a phenomenal... Asian actress inspiration. She was in Fresh Off the Boat, The Joy Luck Club, Street Fighter, apparently. Um, she was did a voice in Ralph Breaks the Internet, as well as the recent Netflix uh, anime about a black samurai, Yasuke. Um, a couple of different things. She was in the Marvel Rising, uh, probably as her S.H.I.E.L.D. character, the Marvel Rising podcast. And again... She was Mulan, so she is literally a Disney princess, a MCU star, a Star Wars star, a voice actress star, and a Asian American actress who is a massively popular and impressive role model for young Asian American girls. Like, oh, I, I love Ming-Na Wen. I think you get it now. And she is back in Book of Boba Fett as Fennec Shand. We met Fennec Shand in Mandalorian. Before we met Boba, she was just another bounty hunter. And then we meet that she is actually, we find out that she is actually working with slash for Boba Fett. Um, and we get to see him in that stupendous episode, which was uh, directed by, was it Robbie something? The guy with, the, he's got the guns and he got the knee gun. Oh my gosh. It was so, so good. Um, so let's talk about the trailer. Let's do a trailer breakdown. 
the overarching diet we're going to start with the overarching dialogue and then going into based on the trailer what we're going to be seeing in the show so the overarching dialogue uh as we go for the trailer would basically seem to be boba sitting in jabba's throne having a meeting addressing the various ruffians that he is now technically in charge of so some of the lines that go back and forth here you have boba saying i am not a bounty hunter and you get one of the aliens who replies i've heard otherwise so they already have trepidation about what he's what he even says that he is there is not a lot of trust they don't know him um then the guy says i know that you sit on the throne of your former employer and one notable thing here is that it would seem they're all using translators at this time because there is a little bit of alien dialogue behind the somewhat electronic english and here boba responds with jabba ruled with fear i intend to rule with respect and that's where you get a lot of the Godfather aspects that people are being really excited about myself. And I gotta say, I've never seen the Godfather. Um, I was always told I was too young to watch it. But anyway, um, <laughs> the, the, the coming in and uh, you scrub my back, I'll scrub yours. Um, we're going to work together. And it actually, that actually is something he actually says here specifically. Fennec Chan says, you were all once captains under Jabba the Hutt. And Boba says, I'm here to make a proposal that's mutually beneficial. Why speak of conflict when cooperation can make us all rich? And so that's the whole, like I just said, you scrub my back, I'll scrub yours. Everybody gets a piece of the pie when we all work together instead of fighting for nothing, basically, in the end. And just in case you had missed the gangster godfather vibes, you get a nice little text over the screen that says, Every galaxy has an underworld. Just to make sure you caught on to that. <laughs> and then we have another alien saying, What prevents us all from killing you and taking what we can? And Fennec Shand responds, being the somewhat bodyguard-ish type, the right hand of Boba, correct? If you had spoken such insolence to Jabba, he'd have fed you to his menagerie. And while I do, um, I, I do think that there was a lot of trickiness in the editing of the visuals um they do put in what seems to be possibly a connected i don't there, there, there's definitely at least two scenes that this conversation is happening over one scene is where jabba is, is jabba boba is on the jabba throne and another scene is where they are all seated at a large table having a discussion um so it's it's kind of Fennec steps down the steps from the throne as she says if you had spoken such insolence to Jabba he'd have fed you to his menagerie and then we get the shot of people looking terrified at the table as Boba says please speak freely just like what a boss he's not even afraid of what he has to say just I will prove you wrong because I know I am that good so whatever this, the trickiness of the editing of the visuals in that, we're probably we're gonna get at least one solid, really imposing conversation between Fennec slash Boba or Boba slash Fennec, I suppose, and the formerly Jabba generals. 
I just, it's going to be so good. Uh, things that we're going to be seeing in the Jabba the, or Jabba, I guess, Boba Fett, <laughs> the Boba Fett series. Um, it's going to be first thing from the trailer, obviously creatures. What is every Star Wars fan's weakness? Creatures. <laughs> Very large, the, the bigger and weirder, the better. And I know with Mandalorian, especially season two, with Mandalorian, there was a buttload of the the ridiculous creatures of Star Wars. We got so much of that between the spiders and the frog people. Friggin' Grogu. Like, <laughs> um, it, it's, it's been so much fun. And that's, and then aliens, obviously. Ton of aliens, different species. It's one of my favorite things. Um, whenever there's like a bar scene, which is classic Star Wars, you always get a variety of aliens. I love to look at the, uh, the ones that you can tell are not CGI, the ones that you can tell are practical effect aliens, and just picture what it's like for the person beneath all of that prosthetic and fur and Star Wars cloakery and whatever else it is they have. I love to imagine what that must be like trying to like turn around and look at somebody when you have this weird bulbous alien headpiece on it's just, it's so fun it's what's a great it's a fantastic star wars trope uh you'll get we're gonna get some classic market stalls you know we always have some kind of market city in the desert uh where people sell things and so we're gonna get some of that that's something we see in the trailer sprawling cityscapes i'm not sure what the city that we see specifically is and when i say city i mean not like, um, I don't mean like Coruscant. Coruscant is probably what you think when you think a Star Wars cityscape. This was more like, um, the kind of stuff that we saw in Rogue One, where it was like a big empty space. And then suddenly you have this like oasis that kind of pops up. Uh, in this case, it looks like it's somewhat sunken into the ground, possibly for weather reasons. Um, and it's kind of just developed this this kind of ground level city for the most part in this one large circular basin um, with a single, I believe it was like a single spire tower coming up from the center and then a couple of little flying ships and stuff around the, around the place. But uh, not Coruscant, it's much more Rogue One type city there. Um, we got a, a good number of shots of Fennec Shand staring down anybody who looks at Boba sideways, which pairs super nicely with the shot of her looking over the sunset, feeling a little, looks like she's feeling a little bit relaxed, while good old Boba Fett fondly watches her from behind. I'm not fucking kidding. I'm, I'm dead serious. Go watch the trailer again. Um, there's a line... I think it was after the line of mutually beneficial that Boba says, a proposal is mutually beneficial. Um, I believe that is when it happens in the trailer. You can see it's just a very brief shot. She's looking over the city. Boba is standing kind of behind her. He is not looking over the city. He is looking at her and smiling. Um, I am not going to think, I'm not going to assume that there's going to be any romance plotline in this. What I'm going to assume is that there's going to be hella good chemistry. Um, I don't see these two as characters who are, you know, inherently romantic or sexual in nature in that sense, besides, you know, just your baseline needs. 
But anybody is capable of getting a crush on a friend who you admire and are um, very fond about. So I would be totally cool with that chemistry just turning out to look like a cute crush Boba's got on Fennec. Or the other I don't care. She's like his bodyguard and he's like, oh my god, I love you. <laughs> that probably made him sound really lame. But the way I'm thinking of it, it sounds adorable. <laughs> we'll also be seeing Twi'leks, of course. Everybody's favorite. Um, apparently there are some people who don't find them attractive. That was news to me today. But the one that we see full face... Um, in the in the trailer that is jennifer beals who i looked up um she is the star of flash dance from the 80s she aged very 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 winely like wine um but she looks great in her twilight makeup as does whoever it is that's next to her uh we get to see boba's helmet full of coins which i'm sure could mean any number of things. It could be a deal gone wrong. It could be them trying to pull one over on somebody, trying to steal stuff, uh, trying to keep something safe. I mean, the list goes on. Just use your imagination. There's so many opportunities of why Boba's helmet is full of coins on the ground. <laughs> and uh, laser shields. Um, that's pretty cool. I think we've, have we seen laser, we've seen laser shields being used in Wakanda. Now we're going to see them being used in space. So that's fun. Uh, tons of battling and fight sequences. I imagine we're probably going to get a bit of unique fight choreography, um, for Tamora Morrison and Ming-Na Wen because they are a bit... They, they seem to both have a bit of a background of fighting of their own styles. Um, so I'm kind of hoping that we're going to be seeing both of them doing their own kind of fight styles as well as their characters' own kind of fight styles. You kind of get what I'm saying there. But um, I think I've talked myself... I think I've talked this to death. Uh, I don't think there's that much else that we could go over. Creatures, big and small uh, and weird. Weapons, I mean, like... We get so many cool weapons every time we get a new bounty hunter or something in Star Wars. Like, they always have a trick up their sleeve. Always. Uh, just all of this, like, from the actors to the characters to the setup that we saw in Mando to the Godfather-esque dialogue in this uh, trailer... I'm I'm beyond sold. It was going to be a fun show. Now it's going to be a thoroughly excellent and most likely very satisfying show. Finally, moving forward, we have news on the Michael B. Jordan Valzad project. And the news is we have some writers. Michael B. Jordan is doing this Valzad project for HBO Max. He is at the very least producing. A lot of people are calling for him to star in it as well. While that may or may not be his decision, um, I could go either way with him starring in it. I My problem with my... He's an excellent actor, obviously Michael B. Jordan. My issue is I tended to see him in things and not the character he's playing. Um, I know Johnny Depp is like that for some people and uh, Steve Carell, you know, some people like that, but um, I, I don't know. I, I honestly 
don't really care if it's him or if it's somebody else. I'm not super invested. I'm just excited about a um, a Valzad movie. Just in general, this project could be really, really cool um, and refreshing. But the thing about this, about, <laughs> before I get too far ahead, the writers who they put on here, um, it's Darnell Medtayer and Josh Peters, which are names you probably don't recognize. They're not exactly huge names as far as I can tell. They've done some stuff here and there. Um, most recently, they wrote Transformers Rise of the Beasts, which is the 2022 Transformers movie. Um, I don't know about you, but these Transformers movies just aren't written very well, usually. <laughs> Granted, this one hasn't come out yet, but history, just history shows is no bueno. Um, so I'm really hoping that this, this is not, this is, oh God, I really, really hope this is not the movie being set for, set up for failure. So that the studios can then use it as an example of why they don't do people of color hero movies. That's the only, like, I love to be proved wrong. So please prove me wrong that this is not what's happening here. Um, because I, I, I smell bullshit. Um, uh, and I hope it's, it's wrong, but, um, putting the Transformers writers, but this, then again, you know, this is Michael Jordan produce, Michael B. Jordan producing. So you would think, okay, he's probably got some insight and chose them for a reason. I'm sure he had something to do with that, right? I would hope so. I would hope so. But if you want to know anything about Valzad, let's talk about Valzad. Valzad is, uh, commonly known as the Black Superman. There are actually two Black Supermans. One is Calvin Ellis. He is President Superman. I'm not joking. And the other is Val Zod. He was created by Tom Taylor and Nicholas Scott for Earth 2's, um, basically to take over the role of Superman from Earth 2's Kal-El, starting in Earth 2 number 25. His whole story was he became the last of his house after his parents were executed by Krypton's courts. Val made fast friends with fellow orphan Kara Zor-El and managed to escape and survive their planet's disruption. Uh, the group that went away together were Val, Kara, Kal-El, and another child. Val was educated on the trip to Earth by his parents' knowledge in his capsule, teaching him that violence was the worst way to overcome their issues, which drives him to become a pacifist. They land on Earth. Val is found by a man named Terry Sloan, who offers him asylum to quote-unquote protect him from the outside world, becoming a complete recluse. He is discovered later by a hero team looking for help to fight off the fight and off-the-rails Superman, and he discovers that he is Kryptonian. He developed a number of psychological issues due to being stuck in a capsule for so long and then being basically under this Sloan guy's captivity, but he is helped through all of that and taught to use his powers by Red Tornado, who in Earth 2 is, uh, or has Lois Lane's mind. So go figure that one. Um, Earth 2 is just like a it's just a parallel Earth. Uh, for a long time, it's where the, I believe, Golden Age heroes went. Um, like the original Flash, good old what's-his-name with the tin hat, um, and characters of that era. That's where they all kind of, where they were all sent to Earth 2. And that Superman, who was the Kal-El from Earth 2, he, um, 
basically is he is the Superman from the Silver Age. Um, and then he, you know, goes crazy or whatever, and Valzad becomes Superman of Earth 2. So, um, this Valzad movie, we don't really know anything about it besides the fact that it's probably going to be about Valzad and Michael B. Jordan is, you know, the, the people who are involved thus far. Um, so we can't really say if this is the plot, if the Tom Taylor, Nicholas Scott origin is the origin they're going to give him, or if they're just calling it Valzad, but he's going to be Calvin Ellis, or if they're going to call it Valzad, or if they're going to call him Kal-El, and he's just going to be like a black Kal-El. We're really not sure. There's been a lot of talk about it. Um, I think the most likely thing would be them to create a, a new character and either call him Valzad and just tie him into a similar history. I, I think that would be the thing that would make the most sense for this movie. Finally, for the news, I just want to remind everybody that there is going to be a Morbius trailer released tomorrow, the 2nd of November. Um, there is going to be a full trailer discussion on the B episode this week, which I should be able to put out Friday as usual. Um, and if I were to guess one thing, I'm going to be going over the character in the comics and origins and need to know symbols and relationships and things that we could potentially be seeing in future Morbius stuff um, or Morbius in, in future MCU stuff. It's all kind of wishy-washy right now. Um, but if I was to make one guess, my one guess is that I'm betting they messed up this movie hardcore by trying to jump onto the Jared Leto sex symbol side of things. Jared Leto is an amazing actor aside from being an attractive human being and a bit of a creep. Um, I, I, I think that's going to be the fatal flaw. Um, in the teaser that was announced or put out this morning, we see a number of classic dark and misunderstood, uh, you know, goth guy shots, as well as a few classic Jared Leto shirtless ripped shots. So, um, what I take away from that is that they're going to try and make him like a sex symbol here. And that's just not Morbius. And so I don't think it's going to work out well, but we will discuss that in full on the next episode. Also, before we go on to the next thing, I just want to remind everybody that there is going to be an introduction to Clea of the Fall Teen episode as soon as I get wind of any kind of facts or confirmation about her being in Multiverse of Madness, which could be a poster, a trailer, a casting, anything like that. As soon as it's official, I will be putting that, well, I'll be recording that episode and putting that out. Now let's go ahead and talk last week in comics. This is going to be stuff that came out October 27th. And just as a review, this is going to be mostly Inferno number two discussion. A little bit Marauders, a little bit Black Widow, and a tiny bit of mentions for Harley Quinn, Spider-Woman, and Wonder Girl, and I believe Daredevil. But that's just where it's going to do real quick so we can move on to this week's comic pull list. So let's kick this off with Inferno number two. This was by Jonathan Hickman, who I swear is going to make us all wish that he had never left the X-Men come January. Um, so we have questions going into this issue. Is the character who Rivers revealed in the last issue, is that really destiny, Miss Irene Adler? How did she return? And how will the vote, we know there's at least going to be one vote for council members that going, we're going to get, we're going to, well, we know there's going to be two. We know they're going to try and vote out Mystique and they're going to try to vote in destiny. So how is that all going to end up? 
All right. So the immediate answer we get with this, is this really destiny? Yes. How did she return? Through Raven's genius. Um, basically, Raven did her body Raven shit that she does and brought her back herself. She said, I'm done with waiting and just did it herself. Um, and so she brought her back. You know, I was always a little bit confused about Irene's age. Um, I mean, I guess you could say Destiny's even as well because not Destiny, Destiny's Irene, Raven's even as well. Um, because when they, you know, their first appearances, they were both old women, <laughs> uh, especially Irene. Destiny Raven had a bit of a pinched face, but Irene was an old ass woman with white hair and a bun. And yet here she would pop up with this swimsuit. I don't know. Whatever. Um, she got great legs, I guess. Um, but one thing I've noticed here is, um, Destiny is brought back close to Raven's age here. And one of the things that um, when we see her there it, it, for the first time coming out of her egg, basically, um, Raven notes that Destiny hasn't changed. She hasn't been here for so long that she is just like she was the last time she saw her. Raven, however... Um, has changed. She has been through so much. Um, her priorities have changed. Pretty much everything about her has developed in one way or another. Um, and that's one of the first things that Destiny, that Irene points out is how different she is and how much she has been through and how hard she's had to fight to get here. And that was like such an emotional moment between these two wives. Oh my God. Um, but then in terms of the vote of voting Mystique off and Destiny in, um, what happens there is the genius that... <laughs> that Raven has in finding everyone's weak spot, be it their ego or their desire to please her or their desire to displease someone. Um, she's able to find all of their little, their little weaknesses. Um, and for Emma, for em to get Emma to vote Destiny on to the council, um, she gives her something. Destiny or Mystique gives her something. What did she steal? It's pretty clear she stole it based on context. Emma is shocked and no, to get Emma Frost to do what she want when she doesn't want to, you have to have done something big. What the fuck did she bring Emma? I'm dying to know. But it is, ah, it's so amazing. Um, but Destiny does get voted on to the vote, of course. Voted on to the vote. Voted on to the council, of course. Um, and then basically snarks everybody into them not even bothering to vote Mystique off the council, uh, which is hilarious and satisfying. <laughs> um, on the other side of things, of course, we have Nimrod doing his Nimrod stuff, getting ever closer to the mutants. Um... And then when Charles and Magneto finally tell Moira the news, guess who's back? It's your favorite. 
Um, it's your favorite future seer. <laughs> it's Destiny. Moira is pissed, of course, and very confused as to how this happened. She wants Destiny killed, but Magneto straight up refuses, citing that he's not a child and he's not going to take down one woman's life for another woman's pleasure. Um, Charles ends up deciding for them that it's they're going to have to bring Emma into their secret circle because Emma is probably the best key figure for them to have on their side at this point. So they bring Emma to the Louvre. Um, they empty it all out because she's psychic and she can do that. Uh, and they introduce her to Moira and it almost breaks her mind to take in all of the information from Moira's lives. And when it's over, she is furious. Um, just completely furious. Um, I'm a little bit unsure of what the outcome of the meeting was. That's the one thing. Um, she's furious about the secrets. She walks out of the meeting saying, you have lost me as an ally, which I feel like is granted for sure. But I think what came out of it was that she just agreed to agree with whatever their plan was going to be um, immediately after this. And their plan immediately after this, um, they decide to vote in their, there's still, there's still an open chair on the council, right? So they decide to vote in another member. And we go around, before we find out who it is, we go around the table, we hear everybody's votes. And it's a yes for Colossus. Now, this is where we get tricky, maybe. Um, one of Dawn of X's biggest critiques is that there are way too many different series, different series to keep up with. For the reveal of Colossus joining the council to hit the way that it's meant to, you need to have read the latest X-Force issue, which reveals that Colossus has been brainwashed by his brother Mikhail to A, kill his little fairy girlfriend, and B, literally paint all of Krakoa's secrets to sell as fine art to their enemies. So that's why him joining the council is going to be really bad. Um, and yet everybody is like, oh, yay, Colossus, you're our ally. We're so happy to have your sturdy self here. They have no idea. They have no idea. <laughs> Um, the one last thing I want to mention about Inferno was we had a page of white text that was very interesting, um, where we see discussion between Destiny and Raven about Raven's resurrections. She says that since Xavier and Magneto are in charge of choosing which mind gets put back into a resurrected body, she theorizes to her wife that she was used by them far more than she even remembers. Destiny reports that there is a hole in the future where she cannot see anything and suspects it's due to them hiding something from her. Uh, possibly that will be Moira's death, that's my best guess. Uh, or Destiny's death. Those are the only two things. I feel like if Destiny if it was going to be Destiny's death, she'd be able to see that. Um, but Moira's death or the complete obliteration of Krakoa would be the two that I come that I come across as what that blank spot in the future could possibly be. Um, but yeah, Inferno number two. Wow, we are we are developing plot fast. We are halfway through this series. This is only going to be four issues. And like I said, 
Jonathan Hickman is gonna leave Marvel with fans writing letters to the ex-editors just begging them to bring him back. I I know that. You do not if you go look at any of the reviews of Inferno 1 and Inferno 2. There is no other series that gets that positive feedback. There is no other era of X-Men since the year 2000 that has gotten such positive feedback as John, what Jonathan Hickman has done. Maybe, maybe Morrison's new X-Men. Maybe. But, I mean, the amount of people of all ages who I have heard from saying, you know, I tried to get an X-Men for years and I couldn't get back into it. I love the the stuff back in the day, but now I'm not so much. But then Hickman came in and I love it again. Like, I have heard that so many times over and over again. They're gonna, he's gonna make sure that they regret pushing him out. They're, they're gonna regret it big time. I can guarantee that. Moving on <clears throat> very briefly to Marauders. This was a cool issue just because we got to see a lot of them working together, uh, getting their powers to work and stuff. So, um, basically the, the, the team is able to rescue themselves from being thrown into outer space. Um, they get back onto their ship and dump the pirate onto Arako and keep his ship. Um, the last page had a fun memo from Bishop to the other war captains, aka Magic and Quanin. He came up with a training plan for the island and Magic signs off on it, calling it Mutant Jury Duty. In Black Widow number 12, Team Widow breaks into a fancy party where Anya and Lucy go missing off of their comms after they discover rare exotic animals being sold with bizarre descriptions. My theory is they're actually selling people. Uh, the issue ends with a guy called the Living Blade having knifed Clint before approaching Nat. Apparently they have some history from years ago back in Madripoor. Meanwhile, after having found and spying on her fake son and real husband, oh sorry, fake husband and real son, they were moved again by Bucky for their own safety. It's interesting that she is going through some shit dealing with her past while she is going through some shit dealing with her present. And I'm curious when we're going to see that, if we're going to see that boil over. Daredevil number 35, there was only one more issue in Chip Zartsky's fantastic Daredevil run. In this issue, Matt somehow gets out of prison and to Elektra in New York to save her from Bullseye. Basically, he's labeled a hero, and that's how he gets out of jail. Typhoid Mary was on her spree to kill Bullseye to keep Fisk safe, but one still gets in and solidly stabs him, and it ends with the two of them deciding to get married. Spider-Woman number 16 wraps up this very long storyline of her brother and niece. Uh, the niece depowers her dad's evil girlfriend, Jessica almost kills him, and then they just kind of get taken away by his company's security. Harley, Ken Harley Quinn number 8 was a cute issue. If you're a fan of Harley and Ivy, which I am, it was a reunion of the Birds of Prey. Uh, the part, the, the small fraction of Ivy, uh, meets up with Harvey, Harvey, Harley, and is able to protect her as they fight people, but I'm still waiting on Ivy to be reunited with Ivy. Uh, and then as for Wonder Girl, we have Yara being made the official Herald? Uh, whatever it is of Hera. I don't have it in front of me. 
where she's torn between Eros and her Brazilian boyfriend. And then uh, she's going to be Hera's champion. That's what it is, champion. Uh, and that's how she gets her Wonder Girl or Wonder Woman outfit that we all know and love. Now let's talk about comics that are coming out this week, starting with Batman Superman, The Authority Special, number one. This is a one-shot being written by Philip Kennedy Johnson, who is a phenomenal Man of Steel writer. Uh, this is going to be following the Superman and The Authority uh, four issues that were written by Grant Morrison vaguely recently. It's going to follow Mongol's attack on Earth. There's going to be conflict between Atlantis and the surface world, discovery of an immensely powerful new element, dead refugees with mysterious ties to Krypton, and the expulsion from the Justice League. It says, when Superman reforms the experimental anti-establishment authority to join him in liberating War World, which is what we saw in that Grant Morrison series, Batman comes to help, uh, comes to them with a request. Join him for one unorthodox, off-the-books mission first, one he could never ask the Justice League to be a part of, and one he doesn't expect everyone to come back from. What more do you want from a Batman-Superman team-up? I mean, really. Philip Kennedy Johnson did the notably Superman Worlds of War, Future State duo of issues. Um, I cannot recommend those enough. They were mind-blowingly good. Tom Taylor and Yasmin Putri are back this week with the first issue of Dark Knights of Steel. This one has been talked off the face of the earth. Um, people are really excited for it, and for a good reason. Let's read the solicit here. An entire medieval world will be forever changed when a spaceship crash lands from a doomed planet. Monarchs will die, kingdoms will rise, and what seemed to be the end of the world for many was only the beginning. An epic high fantasy story set in a DC universe where nothing is what it seems. Tom Taylor is really well known for, gosh, a plethora of things. He wrote Injustice, he wrote Deceased, he's writing um, Dark Ages over at Marvel, and here he is now with Dark Knights of Steel. So clearly this is right up his alley with alternate universes of the DC universe. Um, Yasmin Putri, I don't even know what to say about. She's a phenomenal artist. She is coloring, I believe she's doing all the coloring on her own as well in this series. Which, by the way, there are 12 issues of coming. Um, Yasmin Putri, I am delighted to have her Women of X poster, her print, that shows various female characters of the X-Men in the kind of their original iteration and their modern iteration. It's a really, really sick poster. I am just obsessed with it and her art is delightful. So uh, check out a little bit of the previews about this if you'd like. They're everywhere across the internet because this does come out tomorrow on the 2nd. Just like Human Target number one, this is going to be another 12-issue Black Label Tom King series, this time alongside artist Greg Smallwood. Um, this one is going to be kind of kind of a, a, a funky one for me because I'm not super familiar with the side of DC that he's working with. However, I was not super familiar with... Um, gosh, a lot of the sides of DC that he worked with before he worked with them, so I guess that's not really an issue. But this is going to be following character Christopher Chance. 
He is a man hired to disguise himself as his client to invite would-be assassins to attempt his murder. It says he's made a remarkable career until his latest case protecting Lex Luthor when things go sideways. An assassination attempt Chance didn't see coming leaves him vulnerable and left trying to solve his own murder. As he has 12 days to discover just who in the DCU hated Luthor enough to want him dead. Human Target is a hard-boiled gritty story with blah blah blah. It's a detective noir story. Uh, which is something that Tom King has already made very clear that he is extremely good at. So, I mean, why? Well, how would I want to miss this? And it ties into a lot of the Justice uh, Society or is it possibly Justice League of America. It's the JLA, yeah. The JLA stuff from back in the, like, 70s. Uh, Fire and Ice, a lot of those characters in that era. Um, so that'll be really fun to see his take on a lot of this stuff. He's kind of seems to be, like an old soul, Tom King. Uh, so this feels like an era that will be very appropriate for him to write. Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, gets a number one that book again this week. Who is Sheena? She was the first female comic book character with her own title, with her 1938 premiere preceding Wonder Woman number one. Technically, I believe it was Wonder Woman came into comics first, and Sheena came into comics second. But Sheena got her first title. I don't really know. It, the math doesn't quite work out is what I'm saying. But that's what Wikipedia said. So we'll go with it. Uh, she debuted in Joshua B. Powers' British magazine WAGS number 46 in 1938. And she was created by Will Eisner. Yes, that Will Eisner. And Jerry Iger. So it's a lot of big names in the Sheena history. Um, she has her classic, um, leopard skin bikini. What it says for the solicitation here is the queen of the jungle returns featuring an all-star creative team and the most amazing roster of cover artists, this side of the jungle, the thrilling advent adventure combines the classic elements of the legendary character along with a bit of accessibility in the, it's basically just talking about the covers. Okay, here we go. Sheena is recruited. That's being kind. She's sort of forced to go to enter the biodome, an amazing synthesis and nature and of nature and machine where something has gone terribly wrong. Outside the dome, she's faced with human trickery and deceit. Inside the dome, she faces a deadly jungle and a fast murdering mystery. It sounds interesting enough for me to pick up the first issue. I am all for supporting women in comics. All this is not written by women in comics with Stephen Mooney and Jethro Morales on board. However... Sheena's a woman in comics, so I will support her. Horizon Zero Dawn Liberation number three comes out this week. This is the third of four issues from Titan Comics being written by Anne Toole and Ben McCaw, who are writers for the game with art by Elmer Damaso. This is the return of a new chapter in the story of Aloy and Erend fending off deadly machines, hunting down a killer member of the Osirim tribe. And don't forget, it adds here at the end of the solicitation, Horizon, Horizon Forbidden West is coming to PlayStation this fall. I need to start saving up for a PlayStation 5. That's the one we're on now. Yeah, 5. Red Sonia number three by Mirka Andolfo and Giuseppe Caffaro is really, really good. This is the third part of the first arc. It says the she-devil is in pursuit of warlocks in the swamps of the Karuth's River. She will need the aid of a renegade slave in order to battle necromancers. It is a battle of dark arts against hardened steel. Vampyverse number three by Tom Snigoski and Jeannie... 
Giannine Atchison with Daniel Main on art. This is of six issues from Dynamite again. I've really been enjoying the first two issues of Vampiverse, and it looks like we're going to get some really fun variants of Vampirella as we keep going through the series. The villain in this is Vampirella herself, going by the name Bloodwing. The Me You Love in the Dark number four. Every time this comes out, I just go on and on and on about how much I love it and nothing has changed. It is still phenomenal. Written by Scotty Young with art by Jorge Corona. This is of five issues. The last issue took a romantic as uh, sexual, maybe? Or either way, probably both. Uh, Turn uh, as the writer Roe has sex or whatever it is that she can, I suppose, with her ghostly friend who may or may not be corporeal. So <laughs> that's what I mean by whatever she could do. Uh, this this issue has a one-line solicit. It just says, as Rose isolation takes a turn toward the dark, a series of events reveals more of the true nature of her mysterious companion. This is coming from Image, and if I was to guess, I'm going to guess that this companion has a very dark history in this house potentially of killing its inhabitants or driving them crazy and she is just an exception however she asks herself what if i'm not the exception and that is my doom as well that's my theory and finally batman reptilian number five by garth ennis and william sharp let's read the solicitation and then i'll talk about blast issue okay After following a trail of carnage, Batman has finally come face-to-face with the reptilian that's been menacing Gotham's underworld. And this horrific creature only wants one thing, its mother. But who is its mother? Pick up this penultimate chapter to find out the impossible answer to that question. We actually know the answer to that question already. Um, Its mother is... um, Killer Croc. I'm not saying Killer Croc is a female in this universe. I'm saying Killer Croc birthed a baby. (laughs) <laughs> he located out no actually it's not quite right um basically uh reptiles some reptiles can change genders um batman's theory is basically killer croc was evolving and this was the next stage in his evolution was to gain certain female abilities and to respawn a child <laughs> um this fucking kid dude like oh my god This is probably one of the scariest monster designs I have ever seen in comics. I am not joking. I'm surprised I have not had nightmares about this thing. Um, But the last issue ended with it approaching Killer Croc and going, MAMA! (laughs) Fucking hilarious, obviously. Um, And Batman's just like, don't look at me. (laughs) Also hilarious. Uh, Garth Ennis, Liam Sharp, thank you for this hilarious monstrosity that I love. This is such a good series. The fact that it's like horrifying and funny and also terrifying is like, oh my gosh, this is a genius. I love it. It's going to be six issues. We've only got one more after this. I can't recommend it enough. All right, you have made it to Young Justice Season 4 first four episodes recap. Now, Young Justice is going to be premiering on Thursdays, as far as I can tell from here on out. Um, This is going to be all four episodes uh, in one go. So there's going to be a lot of the finer detail being skipped over, like 
the more intricate parts of their discussions on the march and caste system and family dynamics and the religions versus science, all of these different factors of Martian society that are super cool that we even get a little bit of insight on. I, defer I definitely recommend watching the episodes yourself if you can. But we started off here. Megan and Connor are engaged. He's on the Outsiders now. It's led by Beast Boy. And the three of them go to Mars for the Martian wedding of Megan and Connor. Immediately, the first issue that they run into is that the Zeta Two blows, and they're worried for a good while that her uncle, the good John Jones, is dead, but he is okay. Uh, then there is a fair amount of hostility from the local Martians because Connor and Gar's status as heroes of Earth, and it's, it gets exasperated by Gar's sudden unpredictability and lack of self-control, or so it would seem. It takes a while for this plot thread to untangle, but what happened was the first crowd of quote-unquote haters that they ran into on Mars attacked them psychically, which seemed to have wounded Gar's psyche enough to make him basically a paranoid schizophrenic. Once that's figured out, they can get him better and move forward. They came to Mars on Ms. Martian's ship, the living ship called Bioship, a great and creative name. This ship has been on the show since Megan has, and as a living creature, it has developed deep relationships with all of the members of the once Young Justice team, especially those close to Megan like Connor and Beast Boy. It's a really cool entity, actually. If you're familiar with the show, you definitely understand. The ship has its own story arc in this season, at least for these episodes, and that involves procreation. It does not happen how you would expect. Bioship and all the other living ships across Mars, or the ones that are in the heat or something, they gather somewhere secluded and literally melt themselves into one massive pool of liquefied bioships, then create new ones before splitting back up into themselves. That's the super loose version of what basically happened. It is, like I said, not what I expected. It's not even asexual procreation, just... Orgy baby? <laughs> But anyway, Bioship introduces the baby to the group, and they name her Baby because, again, they are really great and creative namers. <laughs> this arc ends with Bioship deciding that it's going to stay on Mars with its... people, I guess? And Baby is uh, the new ship for the once Young Justice members. There is an emotional goodbye, especially from Megan, because they all had relationships like, relationships like a pet with the Bioship. The Martians have several social castes that are split into a severe hierarchy, with one seen as the greatest and one seen as lower than dirt. It's something that they use as extreme metaphors for our own real world social classes, and this season of Young Justice is no different. While the racial identities is the most obvious metaphor to our world, the third episode this season dealt with the Martians' ability to change their appearance in any way they want, leading to an important discussion that acted as a metaphor for trans people of our real world. You have to remember, Megan is half green and half white Martian, though she herself presents as white. Her sister came out the opposite, presenting as green. So while they are trying to build a wedding canopy of Mars crystals, as is tradition, they end up having a really big argument about their different experiences in their own world due to this caste system. They also discuss how they may have been born one way, they do not identify as such, and thusly make their physical appearance match how they know they truly are. This is where the trans metaphor comes into play really obviously, and the conversation ends with the two women understanding one another much better, and at last joining efforts again to complete the wedding arch. 
part of the overall plot arc is involving Superboy, Ms. Martian, and Beast Boy trying to figure out who killed the Martian King. The prince, Jem, wants Mars to have a new, healthier outlook on its society and worries that the king's murder would split the castes even further. At the same time, the priestess who helped Megan and her sister overcome their issues and built the wedding arch slash canopy with is the prince's ex-girlfriend who took a vow of celibacy after the king refused to let them marry because of their class differences, their caste differences. It is in this episode that the prince finally discovers it was his former lover who killed his father, even if by total accident. Being a priestess, she has magical powers, powers that she lost control of when she confronted the king about wanting to marry his son. An accident, but she still must be placed under arrest. Prince Jem is heartbroken again, and once the news is out, the people begin to stand against the cast to stand against the caste that the priestess came from, citing them as dangerous and foolhardy. Jem stands against his people here and makes a speech about how the caste system is the problem and is to blame for his father, the king's death. Not too surprisingly, this causes a massive split amongst the people's mindsets on if he's right or wrong, but at least the conversation has been started. The last plot thread here in the fourth episode that we're still following is dealing with the Legion of Superheroes, adolescent young heroes from, or young adult heroes from the 30th century. They're here on Mars in the present day in secret, going about some mission that we haven't quite been made fully privy to yet, but is going, um, it's getting pretty messy here in this fourth episode. Earlier on, Megan's revolutionary brother planted a bomb under an invisible cloak beneath the celebration area, um, arena, excuse me, knowing that the magic performance that evening taking place in the arena would have a full audience to make the most of the attack. Now, we see the Legion members go up to the bomb and not stop it, but add something to it. Connor happens to see them there as his x-ray vision, with his x-ray vision, and Megan confirms feeling a particular psychic aurora from when the Zeta tube was blown in the first episode, also by the Legion. Superboy breaks his way down, but they're already gone. But he does find the bomb and recognizes it as a virus that will likely take out parts of the Martian society that the revolutionaries like Megan's brother deem unsavory. Since Megan is half one of those cast casts and Gar has her blood in his veins, Connor starts to panic. It really doesn't say so much specifically, but the particulars of his speech and body language make it very clear. Seeing a lava flow beneath them, he again bursts through the ground, drowning the bomb in the lava. He stays below the surface to make sure the virus is destroyed, and it is. But then the additional piece that the Legion placed on it blows, sending lava all the way up through the surface. When Ms. Martian and the rest finally get to where he was, all that is left is ash and the taste of kryptonite in the air. Even Superman and Martian Manhunter arrive to confirm it. Connor hadn't had access to the sun since being on Mars, underground. He was too weak and the secondary bomb wiped him off the universe. The episode ends there, with the credits rolling over the completed wedding canopy as Megan sobs beneath it. Fucking brutal. So I guess what leaves us here is the major question of why the Legion seemed to be trying to kill Connor this whole time. Why? Um, is he not really Connor? Is there something else going on? Are they really just making it look like he's dead and they stole him? What is going on with the Legion? 
unfortunately, we're not going to find out this coming Thursday when the next episode premieres because it's going to be about Artemis and Cheshire, who are sisters. Um, so that will be uh, hopefully just as interesting and intriguing arc on the other side of things for the Young Justice members or former Young Justice members. And that wraps up this episode of Sensational She Geek live from Yancey Street. I'll be back for the next episode 39B this Friday, November 5th. You know what they say. We'll be talking about the pick list of the week, Doom Patrol episodes, I believe, 8 and 9, the Morbius trailer breakdown, as well as whatever news and rumors breaks the breaks on the internet. Nothing ever broke the internet. Breaks on the internet between now and then. Um, and since we do have, like I said at the beginning of the episode, there is so much media um, coming for... Oh, gosh. Anything nerdy. Uh, there's a lot to expect as far as uh, theories and teasers and trailers and things. So... Keep your eyes open, and uh, otherwise I will talk about it all this coming Friday. Thank you again for listening to this episode for whatever portions of it you were able to. We are in November. It is November 1st. We are almost to 2022. That is kind of wild. I think we're less than 50... We're like 56 days to Christmas or something. Um, please don't start playing Christmas music till after Thanksgiving for everybody's sanity. <laughs> Stay warm, stay dry, unless those things are not what you want in your life. Don't be a dickhead and be sweaty about things you love. <laughs>